an Artemis astronaut, and a look back at 2020. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA announced the first group of astronauts who will train for a mission to the moon. The Artemis Cadre will train for the agency's first human lunar mission since the end of the Apollo program in the 1970s, and will include the first woman to step foot on the surface of the moon. We'll talk with one of those astronauts, Kayla Barron, about the selection and what the mission means for women in the astronaut corps. Then, despite concerns over coronavirus, 2020 was a busy year for space exploration. From the first human missions from the U.S. in nearly a decade to a trio of Mars-bound robots launching to the Red Planet, there's a lot to look back on. We'll chat with The Verge's space reporter Lauren Grush about the busy year up there and what's to come in 2021. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on America's Space Station. Earlier this month, Vice President Mike Pence visited Kennedy Space Center to announce the selection of 18 astronauts, nine men and nine women who will train for a future mission to the moon. My fellow Americans, I give you the heroes of the future who will carry us back to the moon and beyond the Artemis generation. NASA's Artemis program aims to land humans on the moon after two uncrewed missions of its SLS rocket and Orion space capsule. The third mission will land astronauts on the lunar surface for the first time since 1972. One of those astronauts training for the mission is Kayla Barron. She joined the astronaut corps in 2017 after a career as a naval submarine warfare officer. You know, every time I look up at the moon in the night sky, I try to imagine what it would be like to stand on the moon and be looking back at the Earth. And, you know, I think that's something that I can't really wrap my head around but it just fills me with this excitement. You know, the opportunity to do something that seems pretty impossible, um, being tangible and in the fairly near future, you know, putting boots on the moon again by 2024 is just incredible. And I think it will be inspiring to not only the United States, but all of our international partners and the whole world really Um, that we can come together as a human race to go explore another planetary body that's just, you know, our neighbor orbiting our planet. Um, So I think we're all really um, inspired by that opportunity, and it would be truly incredible to have the chance to step on the surface of the moon. You know, I never thought of it that way. You can actually see the moon in the night sky. You can't really see the ISS as frequently as the moon. I mean, do you find yourself just kind of staring at it at night and saying, that could be me one day? Yeah, you know, I do a little bit. It kind of reminds me of the opening scene of um, Apollo 13, you know, where he's sitting in the lawn chair in his backyard covering the moon with his thumb and uncovering it. And it's just kind of crazy to wrap your head around. Like, I think we all have that innate desire to explore that like drive to go see what's beyond our sphere of understanding. Um, And the moon is just this incredibly wonderful, amazing place to explore for scientific discovery. And the Apollo astronauts did amazing science while they were up there, but they explored such a tiny fraction of it. Um, And there's so much that we could learn from going back um, that I think that really excites everybody in the astronaut corps. If you look back at Apollo, especially Apollo 13, you realize there is risk 
in going to the moon. Um, what is your understanding of the risks involved with um, Artemis? Um, and, and, you know, have you discussed these risks with your family? Have you discussed them, you know, with yourself? Um, you know, kind of wrap, you know, have you wrapped your head around just how difficult a mission like this could be? You know, I think we do our best to prepare for those things. Um, the NASA team is really dedicated to doing every they, everything they can to eliminate as much risk as possible. But just like in Apollo 13 and, you know, other things that have happened throughout our spaceflight history, there are some things that you can't plan for and there are some things you can't predict. Um, and it's certainly a risky endeavor to go explore um, space. Uh, but I think, you know, as a military officer, this is not a new scenario for me. You know, I've, I've been working in different ways and different environments for a long time. And until a couple of years ago, my husband was in the army as a special forces officer. So our family has gotten pretty used to having those conversations. And I think what's always been really important for um, me and my husband within our marriage, but also my family as they try to wrap their head around me joining the Navy and the submarine force is just that, you know, I think those risks are worth it. I, it's an eyes wide open thing. You know, you understand that you're taking risks, but you're doing it for a good reason, for a mission, for a team, um, and to accomplish something really incredible. And so I think for myself and the other astronauts in our core, we feel like that those risks are worth it for the potential benefit to humanity um, of going and pushing those boundaries and exploring the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, NASA has been making the push for gender equality in the astronaut corps, especially with the Artemis program. We've we've heard the messaging, the first woman and next man to land on the moon. You are no stranger to firsts, as you were a member of the first class of women commissioned into the submarine community. I'm just wondering if you can reflect on this moment, um, your selection, and, and what's ahead for you as it pertains to gender equality in, in space uh, exploration. Yeah, you know, I think... It's really an acknowledgement of how far we've come since the Apollo era for gender equality. You know, the first woman on the moon will be the first woman on the moon, but in a long line of firsts within the astronaut corps, you know, whether it was the first woman to do a spacewalk or the first woman to command the shuttle or the first, you know, two other members of the Artemis team, Christina Cook and Jessica Muir, who recently did the first all-woman spacewalk, you know, if you walk around the halls of the astronaut office, it's a really diverse group. It really reflects the diversity of America, and it's something we're still trying to improve on for sure. But, you know, if you imagine if we're sending a crew to the moon, of course a woman would be on that crew because there's so many uh, qualified and talented women in our office. Um, so it's definitely something that I think we we celebrate and acknowledge as we move into that next phase of exploration. And finally, Kayla, what, what's next for you? Can you give us some insight into your, your next steps at NASA? Will you be getting that trip to the ISS? I hope so. <laughs> um, I think our class was really focused on that in our basic training, and we've been really inspired by the astronauts in our office and their experiences there. Um, so if I got the opportunity to do that, I would definitely jump at it. Um, and I think it's probably the best way I could spend my time in preparation for a future uh, moon mission, but we'll see. We'll see. And is there any specific training that you will be doing um, because you are selected for the Artemis cadre? 
Um, we're getting ready to start those training programs. The specific mission training will start when the crew assignments do. So about 24 months, two years before a launch is when we'll start uh, training in earnest. But we already have astronauts dedicated to developing that training. So a good example of that is we have the Neutral Buoyancy Laboratory here in Houston, where we practice for spacewalks on the space station. In a giant pool, we're in a really that microgravity environment. But we've cordoned off a section of it, and we're using it to simulate lunar gravity or one-sixth of Earth's gravity. So there are people walking around on the bottom of the pool, you know, collecting rocks and practicing with tools. Um, so we already have astronauts working on those goals of developing the training so that when the crews are assigned, we really know what we need to do to prepare them. Great. Well, that's my time. Thank you so much, Kayla. And I appreciate um, you making time for me. And congrats again. Can't wait to see uh, Thanks, the future in the astronaut corps. Have a great day. That was NASA astronaut and Artemis Cadre member Kayla Barron. Still to come, a look back at a busy year in spaceflight with The Verge's space reporter, Lauren Grush. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. Despite concerns over coronavirus, 2020 was a busy year for space exploration. From the first human missions from the U.S. in nearly a decade to a trio of Mars-bound robots launching to the Red Planet, there's a lot to look back on. We're joined by The Verge's space reporter Lauren Grush about the busy year up there and what's to come in 2021. Lauren, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Well, human missions from the U.S. really stole the headlines this year, and for good reason. But I want to talk about some of the other stories that happened this year, um, starting with some robotic missions. Let's talk about sample returns. Uh, we have about three sample return missions hitting major milestones this year. Uh, talk a little bit about the asteroid missions and the lunar return missions uh, that were ongoing in 2020. Absolutely. So where to start? <laughs> I guess the biggest one, or the the one that happened in space was the OSIRIS-REx mission. And basically, the moment that they had been gearing up for throughout the entire mission, the actual sample grab happened this year. And, you know, I feel for the team, it happened during a pandemic, they definitely weren't planning for that. So they really had to do a lot of reworking to figure out how to do this really important and crucial maneuver while practicing social distancing. They also told me that they had, they had planned to do these big get togethers and, you know, parties afterwards, but instead they had to celebrate on their own, or at least with a lot less people in the mission control area, Mm -hmm. but they succeeded. They were able to tap their asteroid and get a sample. And in fact, they got so much sample that the material was overflowing from the sample collector. And uh, they they had to race to put the sample and store it inside the spacecraft so that they didn't end up losing too much material before they they returned home to Earth. Mm -hmm. A good problem to have, huh? Yes. (laughs) Too much 
too much, but they were overflowing. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the two other missions that we have? There was another asteroid um, sample return mission that successfully dropped its package off, right? Right. So Japan's sample return mission, Hayabusa 2, uh, came back to Earth after many years in space, and it dropped off its sample container containing samples from an asteroid Ryugu, and that landed in Australia and we just found out that they did indeed capture material, lots of material from the asteroid. And so that's going to be really exciting to follow as they study that material in a laboratory setting to learn more about this material and this asteroid uh, that we've been seeing lots of great pictures of in space for the last few years. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of China, China didn't go to an asteroid. Instead, China went to our moon, which would be the third mission uh, that China has sent to our own natural satellite. And they successfully landed on the moon with uh, their mission Chang'e 3 and scooped up material from the lunar surface, sent it back to our planet, and then that also just landed in Inner Mongolia. And so now scientists will be taking a look at those samples as well to learn more about our moon and its evolution as well. And as you know, also our entire earth moon system, uh, jumping to another planet. Uh, we saw an armada of Mars bound spacecraft launch this summer. Um, as a space reporter, uh, what is so exciting to you about this, you know, trio of missions that are heading to the red planet? Well, I, for one, I just think it's great that we, ha we are at this place where it's not just the U.S. sending missions to Mars anymore. Mm -hmm. It's a, a whole range of countries now have the capability to send spacecraft there. And I think that just shows how we've progressed throughout the world in space and the space technology that we've been able to come up with. And I, that's really fun for me to follow because I learn more about other countries and their space programs, which are all so unique and different. And so, you know, for me, selfishly, I think that's fun. That's fun for me to learn about. <laughs> um, but also at the same time, it gave me a lot to cover this summer because they all had to fly or they all had to launch within that certain window because mm -hmm. of the alignment of the planets. And so I was a little crazed uh, this year just trying to keep up with three very complex, very unique and very uh, important missions. And so when, once one mission was done, I was like, okay, time to Time to completely change to the next. <laughs> that was no easy task. Um, but yes, yeah, so the three that that launched were the UAE's mission would to send a an orbiter to Mars to study its atmosphere and its weather, and then you have China's mission, Tianwen uh, One, which sent a whole a trio of spacecraft, including a lander and a rover, to Mars. So this will be the first time that China attempts a landing on the surface of Mars, which is always always fun. And then we also have another rover from the U.S. Uh, landing on Mars Perseverance, which is just probably the most complicated and complex robot, space robot ever. And it's going to actually look for signs of life and then dig up samples of material that could potentially be returned to Earth someday. It's just a completely fascinating robot. And so I'm going to be very I'm going to be on pins and needles when it lands and then hopefully it makes it down in one piece and then we can follow its, its uh, mission as it treks across the terrain of Mars. Mm -hmm. The, the Mars rovers always seem to have their own personalities too, right? You have, you get this Absolutely. attachment to it, you know? 
Yeah, I believe there's a, a parody Twitter account of, of Perseverance called Perseverance Rover that has been a delight as it makes its way over to the Red Planet. And have you finally been able to spell it correctly uh, right off the bat, unlike myself? Um, <laughs> I was the, I got to a good place over the summer. I've probably <laughs> lost that ability since then. <laughs> once once it starts to, once it gets closer to Mars in February, I think maybe I'll pick that back up again. Get some more practice in. All right. Sure. Well, let's let, let's talk about NASA's moon ambitions. Um, and I want to start with the Artemis Accord. Um, what is the importance of this diplomatic step uh, for for multiple nations uh, exploring the moon? So, people who don't follow space probably don't know that we have a, a, a treaty that acts as kind of a backbone for how we're supposed to explore the cosmos. It's called the Outer Space Treaty. And it basically lays out guidelines for what you're supposed to do when you go to space. You're supposed to explore it peacefully. You know, you can't claim uh, sovereignty over uh, a, an outer space body. Don't send weapons of mass destruction into space. Um, but the Outer Space Treaty is quite vague and, and purposefully so. It, it It's not meant to be super restrictive, but to just kind of have a, a, a framework for nations when they go into space. With what NASA wants to do is make things a little more specific because NASA has this very big goal of sending people to the moon again, but this time they want to do so sustainably and to use the resources on the moon to help, you know, provide resources for a lunar base or, or perhaps bring things back home, you know, just, they just want to have flexibility or at least they want to be able to use the ground or use the, the resources that are on the moon when they get there. And so what NASA did was create the Artemis Accords. And essentially it's a little more specific framework about how to explore the moon specifically, or at least how NASA wants to explore the moon specifically. And it says, okay, you know, it's okay to use, you know, lunar material, talks about, you know, um, preserving heritage sites like the Apollo landing spots. And what NASA is trying to say with the Accords is we all agree that these these exploration guidelines are okay, and uh, you can come with us if you agree to these guidelines. And so other nations signed on already, and NASA is hoping to get other countries to, to join in later. Notably, some have not joined, like China and Russia, but, you know, that could, I doubt it will change in the near future, but it could. Um, but yeah, so really it's it's taking things one step further by saying you know this stuff isn't explicitly in the outer space treaty but we're going to go ahead and say it's okay and we all agree that we're on board with this i'm i suspect that not every country is going to be on board with this because it does you know take things a little step further than maybe some other countries would like but it is a really um, interesting piece of, or an interesting document that NASA has come up with. And uh, a lot of, you know, they already have so many people on board already. So it'll be, I'm, I'm interested to see if any conflicts arise as NASA gets closer to actually putting people on the moon. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about um, SpaceX's 
2020. Um, this was a big year yeah. for this private company from from Starlink to Starship and, and crude launches. I mean, the company really did have a banner year. Um, starting with Starlink, I mean, what was the big milestone for you um, with this pretty ambitious project of SpaceX's? Well, I think the biggest thing I would say is the Starlink launches have become routine. And once that happens, then you know that SpaceX has really started to master something because I think I was looking through my stories and at the beginning of the year, I was still covering them with, you know, a novel air. And now it's like, oh, there's another Starlink launch. All right. You know, it's just another, another weekend, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's, that is, it doesn't get a lot of attention, but that is certainly uh, something to be commended. And then of course they started their beta testing program this year with Starlink. They had enough, satellites in orbit to start rolling out the program to beta users. And so I think that is also a big achievement for Starlink. And then, you know, we might possibly see them start commercial operations sometime next year. We'll see. Uh, In terms of the other things, I mean, obviously, you know, SpaceX launched its first human crew. Not They didn't just launch their first human crew. They launched two crews of humans uh, this year. So, I'm I'm waiting for that to become routine for SpaceX too. I don't think human launches are ever routine. I always watch them with a, an air of fear mm-hmm. and awe, but perhaps we will get into some kind of routine in the future with them. Mm-hmm. And, and all of these things happen, not just at SpaceX, but but through NASA and other agencies uh, during an unprecedented year with this uh, with this coronavirus. Um, what were some of the stories of of the space industry adapting? to such a different time during this pandemic. Right. So I it was all such a big question mark when the pandemic was getting underway, especially for me as a reporter and then also for the companies of just how we were going to deal with this. And for a time things did slow down in space, you know, uh French the spaceport in French Guiana, you know, stopped launching for a little bit because of travel restrictions and not having the enough personnel to to perform launches. You know, uh, some European spacecraft turned off the instruments on their vehicles so that people didn't have to come into mission control to operate them. So things like that started to, to uh leak through and and we weren't really sure what it was going to be like for the industry as a whole but then at least for the u.s you know a lot of u.s companies benefited from being considered essential by the government since they had contracts with nasa or the department of defense and i think that really helped a lot because it allowed these companies to keep going and also nasa was able to figure out how to work its missions by doing these social distancing measures, but also keeping a majority of its workforce at home. So really, for me, it felt like there was a bit of a blip right when things started as people adjusted to the new normal. But then, you know, a lot of these agencies and a lot of these companies really adjusted quite well and and were able to keep their operations going and and get their, I mean, so many spacecraft flew this year and rockets launched this year, despite everything that was going on. So I think the space industry really adapted well. And we can, we can see that by just the sheer amount of vehicles that went into space this year. Mm -hmm. And finally, Lauren, as this year comes to a close, what are you keeping your eye on for 2021 and and what's ahead for you uh, in the new year? 
Well, 2021 will be very interesting as we switch administrations. And so I'm very eager to see if any changes manifest for the Artemis program at NASA. Obviously, we're going to have a lot of turnover with personnel. And but with what this administration did with NASA, they put a lot of chess pieces in place for the Artemis program. And I, I think they tried their best to make it unkillable. Um, but, you know, it's really up to the new administration. So it'd be interesting to see what changes they do make with the program. Uh, I think a lot of people are speculating that the 2024 deadline that, you know, Vice President Pence put on the landings, I feel like that is completely, that will, that will most likely be gone. I, mm-hmm. I can't imagine that sticking around for much yeah. longer. But in terms of other changes, you know, I really don't want to speculate because we really don't know. And not not a lot has been said um, officially. So it, that'll be fun to follow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of hardware that's supposed to launch next year. Uh, and, you know, with, with when it comes to launching things, you know, it's constantly moving to the right. We have the James Webb Space Telescope, which has been delayed and delayed, delayed. But it's supposed to launch next year. You also have the space launch system, which has been delayed, 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 but it's also supposed to launch next year. So I'll be interested to see if some of that big stuff actually does make it off the ground. Mm-hmm. And then uh, another thing I'm always keeping an eye out for is those uh, commercial suborbital tourist rockets. Will they actually start commercial operations? You know, each year at the beginning of the year, they always say this is the year. And so the, the, they haven't changed their tune for 2021. So we'll see if that actually takes place next year. And we won't hear from you for the first half of 2021, right? No, I am going to be experimenting with a new way of life, which I'm very excited about. I will be on book leave for the first half of 2021, working on my book called The Six, which is about the first six women astronauts at NASA. Excellent. Well, we are, we'll miss you in the first half of 2021, but cannot wait to, uh, to see what you come up with for your new book and, and the, the second half of 2021. And hopefully we can make this, this is becoming a uh, kind of an annual tradition for the two of us. Uh, so hopefully <laughs> we can do this again at the end of 2021 and have some good news uh, as well. <laughs> We've been speaking and, with... You know, in the first half of 2021, I might need a break or so from writing. So if you want me to... <laughs> Sounds good. Talk, I'm happy to take a break from the book for a little bit. <laughs> You're welcome anytime. Well, we've been speaking right. with Lauren Grush. She's the senior reporter at The Verge covering space. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me and happy holidays. That's going to do it for this week's show. Stay connected online. Visit wmfe.org slash space or give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram. We're at AWTY space. On Facebook, just search for Are We There Yet podcast or shoot me an email, yet at wmfe.org. And if you're not already, be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. Subscribe on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE, America's space station. Editorial guidance this week from Nicole Darden-Creston. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners, and until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.